Welcome to the CSLP Podcast, where we're helping to educate, inform, and assist financial professionals and student loan borrowers to make smarter repayment decisions. All right. Well, we got Ryan on. Uh, thanks for joining us today, Ryan. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for, for the invite. Yeah, it would be great. Ryan, can you uh, give us a little bit of background about your practice, um, your history in financial services, uh, so that some of the listeners that maybe don't know you can get to know you a little more? Sure, absolutely. So uh, I founded Deliberate Finances in 2016. My short uh, biography is I graduated and joined Teach for America, taught for five years, was then an uh, administrator at a charter school doing HR and uh, recruitment. Uh, and learned a whole lot about people's personal finances. You, you know, you're working with all these really intelligent, successful, ambitious, highly educated people, many of which know nothing about their personal finances. Um, so it's really just an education gap. And so at the same time, I was working with a financial planner myself, and um, he recommended, you know, you seem interested in, in this field and in learning more. And so he pushed me to start taking the CFP coursework just to see if it would be of interest. And I knew right away, like, this is what I actually want to be doing yeah. long term. And um, over a series of years, then kind of made the switch and, and earned the CFP and launched my own firm, Deliberate Finances, in fall of 2016. So coming up on about three years of being open. And I primarily work with uh, young couples you know, and, and educators with a heavy overlap. So a typical client profile for me might be a, a couple in their early 30s who make between you know one hundred and thirty and two hundred thousand dollars, and have all the things that are going on at that point in life, right? So they might be merging finances and figuring out benefits at new jobs and planning for a baby and having bought a house and oftentimes hey, also managing student loans. Let me lot. interrupt you right there because I would love to hear your what you have to say substantively about managing student debt, in particular with those sort of benefits that you that borrowers earn through, uh, for example, AmeriCorps programs. I, I know the you know that these days the education voucher um, has you know a lot of implications for borrowers, and I wonder if you encounter that now in your practice um, as you did perhaps when you were uh, experiencing it yourself. Yeah, so there are two major pieces. Uh, one, you know, my own experience with student loans, which all things considered, I feel pretty lucky. Uh, on the one hand, you know, my my student debt load when I graduated was right around $29,000 and my salary, my first year of teaching was also right around $29,000. Um, but via some forgiveness options, both state and, and federal through AmeriCorps, you know, I got more than half of that wiped away. Uh, and that was been really helpful for me. So I, you know, certainly didn't have the same experience a lot of borrowers do in terms of the, you know, constraints that student debt can cause, but I do have some personal experience. Well, you know, and I think what, what, you know, what your personal and professional experiences are sort of bringing to my mind right now, it's just, it's, it's, it's true that each of us has different options and challenges with regard to making decisions about our student loans, depending on when we did our borrowing and when we did our working. You know, like I had different loan repayment assistance benefits that I benefited from that other people can't get anymore, but I can't, you know, benefit from the new stuff just like you can't. And, you know, every every borrower's options are dependent on that borrower's, you know, position in time in terms of when they went to school. Uh, which I think is one of the things that's 
makes it very tricky for advisors to do a good job um, because you do have to have, you know, more than one scheme uh, in mind at a time. Yeah. Um, so a couple, couple of things that happened with my own experience. So one, um, you know, I, so I graduated college in 2006, so I'm pre a lot of the income driven repayment plan options. Uh, and I really just kind of knew I was paying them off and I didn't have, you know, the debt load that was totally unmanageable. Um, and so as part of Teach for America, it's an AmeriCorps program. I believe at the time each year we got 47.50. I know it's a little bit over 5,000 now per year that can either go towards future uh, education costs or to forgiveness of student loans. And so I filed for that at the end of each year. Um, in my early 20s, ignorance is bliss, had no idea that that was considered taxable income. And so both <laughs> about two years later for the 2006 one, and again, two years later for the 2007 one, got a lovely letter from the IRS saying, um, you didn't report this income. So that's one thing to look out for, just that the AmeriCorps stipend, if you do get it and apply it to forgiveness of part of your student loans, that that's actually considered taxable. And I didn't report it on my taxes. Luckily, it wasn't a huge burden, right? You know, I got a letter that basically said, you know, you owe $700, $800. So it was workable for me. It wasn't something that was unmanageable. Um, and I also, there was a state of Mississippi program for teaching in uh, particular districts that had a high level of uh, free and reduced price lunch. And in my district, it was you know, 99%, um, which I didn't actually know about until after the first year I taught there. So I missed out on $3,000, but I got it the second year. So between all of those things, you know, I had more than $15,000 of my 29000 forgiven. So I was lucky enough to be able to pay mine off within about five years of graduation. And I actually, I'm thinking, you know, to kind of, connect that to the question that you asked me about kind of in my practice too and kind of how I got interested. So I had my personal experience and then I, I took an eight hour course with a uh, wonderful person who taught me everything I know about student loans initially uh, named Heather Jarvis. My walk away from that was, okay, I feel really good about this. I feel really knowledgeable. And so I think we just say to any advisor, um, if you're going to give student loan advice at a bare minimum, you should have taken Heather's course or something comparable, because I think if you don't have at least that, um, you're really like ill prepared to know all the mindfall, mind the pitfalls and minefields that are out there. But in addition to that, you know, kind of what I realized and part of why I eventually went on to do the CSLP is I think I had just enough knowledge to get myself in trouble. Um, like, I'm guessing y'all are familiar with like a Dunning-Kruger theory. Yes. Right. So like your confidence is often like you, when you have just a little bit of knowledge is often when your confidence is very high. And then as you gain more knowledge, it kind of drops off a cliff for a while until you truly become an expert. And I think after your course, I knew enough to get myself in trouble is what I realized. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. And I think, you know, that one of the reasons that Jance and I and Larry have worked so hard on the curriculum for the CSLP and, and are continuing to work hard on making it, you know, better is because it is an, an awful lot of information that you really it's it's much more than you can learn in one day. Um, and it does and it does take time. And I think, you know, your point, Ryan, is good, too, that I, I feel like when I was learning this stuff, you know, long ago, I, I sort of had the benefit of learning it as it developed over, you know, over time. So I'm like, things started out simpler, and then they would get more complex, but I could just sort of build on what I already knew, which is what you're able to do now, but that a beginner can't do. So on the on the one hand, I don't want to people who 
don't have enough education to be getting in trouble and be, you know, having doing, as you say, having being overconfident in their own skills. Um, but I also don't want to discourage people. I want to provide the support people need to be able to do a good job, you know? Yeah. And I, and, and I feel a noticeable difference, you know, not even necessarily in my knowledge, but my confidence in the knowledge, I think is significantly greater having gone through the CSLP and also like the way I see connections between different pieces, right? So anytime you learn something in isolation, it's hard to then apply it, you know, as part of a bigger picture. And so thinking of all the different ways, you know, like you said, all the different variables that are a part of what's an option to someone, like you, I see it much more clearly and I can look at a student loan case now. And while I might not know the numbers, I can generally look at it now and within, you know, half hour to an hour, be able to go, okay, this is the repayment plan and this is the series of steps. Now I will still then go through and try to put some numbers behind that because sometimes the math isn't actually you know, sometimes you might give a recommendation that isn't necessarily just the mathematically best answer because there's so many other pieces here in terms of mm. managing uncertainty and negative amortization and all those sorts of things. So, so I will still do it, but I think I now having gone through the CSLP rather than having to spend three or four hours looking at every different thing and looking up a million things, I can synthesize it quickly and say, oh, this is a case that it makes a ton of sense to do married filing separately because the spouse with the lower income has the higher student loans and is going to go for PSLF. Done. Mm-hmm. Got it. Right. But I just like, I just blabbered on right there, like four different pieces that I connect in a row now automatically that coming out of your course, I would have like kind of known about, but not necessarily put them all together in a really succinct and clear way. And frankly, be able to do it efficiently enough to make it a profitable part of my business. Right, right. No, I think it, I think that's a fantastic example. And you know what 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 I try to do in an introductory introductory training of the sort that you attended, although it wasn't intensive because it was all day, is just to sort of make sure that that people have a sense of spotting issues. You know, and, and that probably comes from my educational background as an attorney. That's always the way they teach you. You know, you don't have to know all the rules at, at the tip of your tongue. You know, you don't have to know, you know what the dates are for eligibility for pay-as-you-earn, for example. But you do have to know that there are dates and you have to know where to look them up and, and how to compare and how to get the information on your client and see how it matches up. So um, you've just, you're so smart, Ryan. You've come so far. Oh, my God, I'm so proud. I feel like a, a mother hen. I'm going to start clucking. I'll try to jump in here, but I would say that one of the biggest challenges in the financial services industry is for most financial advisors and accountants, student loans is so foreign to them. It's not something you learn in your MBA courses. It's not something you learn in the CFP program. So just the basics of getting to understand the basics of financial aid, what different loan types are and repayment programs and a standard 10-year plan versus a graduate plan, just that takes a full day just to get your arms around that before you get into some of the advanced stuff of income driven repayment plans and how payment plans are calculated and and you know i just i think that it's so important ryan as you mentioned that financial advisors accountants that are going to be talking to people with student loans learn this information uh, because without this detail they, they could make some pretty big mistakes for their clients that that might cause liability to their firm Yeah. And I'll give you an example there. So last year, oh my gosh, actually about two years ago now, I met with a woman who's a teacher and she had a bunch of student loan debt and she was also engaged. 
And so she was trying to figure out, you know, what should she do? Um, and, you know, it was pretty clear that her, her soon to be husband made a lot more than her. She had more in student loan debt at that point than her salary by a pretty significant amount. I think it was like $60,000 of debt and a $42,000 salary, something like that. Um, and so part of my plan, because I did a, a student loan plan for them, it was basically like, you know, you work in a school, you've already actually made a few years of qualifying payments. You just have to go back and get credit for them for PSLF. So you're going to go towards PSLF, which is going to require you to use married filing separately because that's going to keep your payment lower than, you know, having a spouse who's got, you know, more than double your income. And when they went to file taxes, their CPA was insistent that there was no good reason for them to be doing married filing separately and that it was costing them money. And I said, please, like, connect me to your CPA. I'm happy to walk them through it because it's, it is counterintuitive, right? Like young couple in that situation, there's not, if you don't know about the student loan factor, he's right. There, there, there isn't, you know, a good reason. Most people are going to benefit from doing married filing jointly. Why would you, you know, take away the student loan uh, interest deduction, right? Um, but he just didn't know. And I think most people, A, don't necessarily know, but I think B, to your point, Heather, a minute ago, like you, because some of it is very counterintuitive, it's not even that they don't know, it's that they don't know that they don't know, if, to be very meta about it. Well, yes, Ryan. And I think, you know, that that, that reminds me also of, of something I want to emphasize, which is that, you know, student loan expertise is not enough. And, and that's one of the reasons that, you know, my focus in recent years has been in working with financial advisors and in um, because I, I saw all of those student loan advice outfits popping up that were, you know, completely, um, completely inadequate. And, and, it, and it is clear to me, even as someone who does know a lot about student loans, that I don't know enough about the other parts that matter um, in order to, you know, I don't, I don't work with student loan borrowers directly unless they are working with a financial advisor because you can't answer the question of a student loan borrower about, you know, should I pay more than I have to, or should I do this or should I do that with my student loans unless you know, you know, whether they have an emergency fund or what they're doing with regard to their retirement contributions and such. And I think that would also be, um, you know, that that's a, a different sort of side of the same coin. Definitely. And, you know, I throw in, you know, credit card debt or uh, credit score generally, um, family financial situation, are you expected to be helping people or might there be a trust or inheritance in your future, which, you know, might change what your choices are today. So I do think um, having, having the integrated picture of the tax, retirement, investments, cash flow, debt, all of that matters because, you know, some situations, you know, there, there might be a clear answer, but a lot of situations it's going to be like, well, I think it's this, but you also have to keep in mind ABC things, right? Um, and I'm happy to give a couple examples of that. If that's, if that's helpful, I can think of a couple clients where, um, you know, that, that knowledge that I had of their holistic finances was really important in giving the student loan advice because, you know, in a, in a vacuum, I probably would have made a different recommendation, but with the overall picture, um, you know, it changes, it changes what the recommendation might be. Right. Have, have you seen clients where, you know, maybe in the long term, there's no benefit for forgiveness from them, um, but the short term cash flow relief in the rest of their financial plan is beneficial to them? Um, situations like that where, you know, things are counterintuitive, as you mentioned, like you'd normally say pay more than your minimum, but 
maybe they're in income driven repayment plan with forgiveness so that advice wouldn't wouldn't register or like i said maybe they're not likely to have forgiveness in the long term but the cash flow relief in the short term is, is imperative to their plan yeah um all of the above so i think that just to for for anyone who may be listening who isn't familiar i'm guessing a lot of you are but just the the double-edged sword of the income-driven repayment plans like the benefit is you know you get that nice low payment much lower than you would otherwise be required to pay the downside is you might not even be covering the interest on that's accruing every month. So you might be making your payment every month and then watching your balance grow up, grow instead of shrink. Um, or, you know, just kind of tread water or you might be paying, you know, $200 and it only drops by $2 because the interest accrual was 198. Um, and I realize I might be explaining something that a lot of people are already familiar with, but I do think that's a little bit counterintuitive to a lot of people that, you know, this required payment to stay in good standing is not a function of your total debt and your interest rate. It's a contingent on your income, which is completely separate, right? So yeah, I have seen people where they have made a choice to get the lowest present payment without necessarily knowing what the long-term consequences of that are. So forgiveness is one route where I've seen that, but I've also seen that with the extended repayment plan. I think you know, sometimes people go back to school, get graduate loans, come out, and they go, oh my gosh, I can't afford this payment on the 10-year plan, and they put it on the extended, and then, you know, great, you got your payment down, but you're going to be paying on that thing for 25 years. Right, and you know, that the, the story you tell there, Ryan, reminds me of something that's actually been on my mind earlier this morning, is that the the, the borrower's um, position in life and, and age and life expectancy also come into play, uh, particularly if you're working with older borrowers uh, and parent borrowers. I mean, I have had a number of uh, circumstances come across my attention where people really are going to be better off, you know, getting like a brand new consolidation loan when they're elderly from their, you know, parent plus loans so that they can spread the payments out over 30 years and make payments for, you know, 10 or 15 years until they die and get, you know, cancellation of the remaining balance. That can be better than an income-driven plan for some retirees. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, I, I've actually never worked with that, but that's fascinating, right? Like that we, I need to take into account, like, yes, this is a loan that will be amortized over 25 years, but you're 70 years old and in not great health. Therefore, you, you know, I hope that you are here 25 years from now. However, the financially prudent thing to do might be to plan for a scenario, you know, I mean, we have to do this with retirement planning, right? So like, yes, it's a little bit morbid, but all planners are doing this anyways. Like you have a, a estimated date of death in your, you know, retirement simulator. And this is really the same thing. Um, it's just something that I think people don't necessarily, um, you know, I had never even actually thought about with a borrower until this conversation. Not date. Well, you know, just saying like, hey, you know, obviously if you retire at 65 and you put in a, a that you're going to life expectancy is 75, you're obviously going to get a very different outlook than if you say that you're, the person's going to live till 95, right? Of course. Um, so, you know, you have to put that in there. And I think for most people now I use, you know, most of my clients are young, right? So I, I use 90, 95 as sort of a placeholder, but obviously, you know, that, that is a lot more of a conversation when you are 
working with someone who's much closer to those ages. I mean, I think for most of my clients who are in their twenties and thirties, like that's, I, I'm just going to put it as like the life expectancy for a educated, healthy person in the United States, put it around 90 and, and adjust from there. Just like we have to do with all kinds of variables. Oh my God. You guys actually have an estimated date of death in your retirement plan. Isn't into plan. No, of course. Yeah. It makes sense. <laughs> Right, right. And then for for those who are advising people about paying for college or and or saving for college. So for for the for people at the at the youngest end of that spectrum in terms of accessing education and the costs related to that, they it's it's impossible to advise them about uh, the potential for student loans, because I think, you know, that the best guess is that things could get really different for future borrowers, too. You know, so uh, we're going to start, we already do have some, you know, kind of generational issues with regard to student borrowing and sometimes in the same family. Uh, you know, the parent parent borrowed for themselves and their children and then the children borrowed for themselves and, and then there's, you know, maybe there's a grandparent who uh, might have some cash and so it's really um, can get pretty elaborate. Hey guys, so let's change gears a little bit. Let's let's talk about some current events. So Heather, you um, sent out some information this morning to us uh, about the GAO and the Temporary Public Service Loan Forgiveness. Can you give us a little info about that? And I think Ryan offline, you were talking about um, a similar situation you had with a client. Um, I think that would be interesting for people to hear about just what the GAO has said and, and sort of the interpretation you've seen from some clients, Ryan. Yeah, sure. So the so the the government accountability office, which is nonpartisan and looks at stuff, has published a report. This is um, with regard to the temporary expanded public service loan forgiveness, which is that um, pot of money that was established to try to um, relieve some of the borrowers who had been denied public service loan forgiveness, particularly because they were in the wrong repayment plan um, and not specifically for. <laughs> well, the, the, the thing is, is that there's a lid on this pot and it is apparently it is welded shut so it's a pot but it is you can't actually reach in to take any money out of it so the um the you will be i know you will be shocked to learn that the the gao has found that the department of education's process for obtaining this relief is not clear to borrowers huh Wow. So that is, so they said the process is not clear. It was supposed to help borrowers and it's not doing that. They, the Department of Education processed about 54,000 requests uh, as of May 2019. Um, and they've approved 1% of the requests. They denied 99% uh, um, and most of the ones they denied were denied for a procedural cause. So the temporary expanded public service loan forgiveness program requires a borrower to first apply for public service loan forgiveness and be denied. Um, and so people were applying for temporary uh, expanded and had not yet applied for the regular ones. So they were denied. 
Um, and then others were denied uh, because they had not made enough qualifying payments, which was likely the reason they were denied in the first place. Uh, and and then uh, some others had no qualifying federal loans. So that was likely an issue of uh, those older um, fell loans, as we've talked about. Now, is this pot of money at the end of a rainbow that vanishes when you get there? <laughs> it could. It could not. Depends how many people get there <laughs> before you. It it's a race, basically. And I think what's interesting to me about this and the public service loan forgiveness uh, generally is like there's the 99% rejection rate is, I think, it's like six different stories in one, right? So there are, there's the story of like that the rules are very unclear and that is absolutely happening. There is a story of like poor servicing on the part of FedLoan where people actually do meet every single requirement but get told that they don't. So that's like its own thing. Then there's people who really did do almost everything right and it's a small administrative thing. So technically they're in the rejection rate right now, but they're going to get there. They need to refile some paperwork or something, right? So that's something. And there's also people who, you know, if, uh, putting it bluntly, like, really, this was a prayer. This was just like, I'm desperate. I'm so stressed out. I'm so overwhelmed. I'm just going to put in this paperwork and hope and pray that, you know, something works. And they haven't actually done any of the requirements or, you know, have done, like, not remotely close to the requirements. So I think what's so hard about that number is, like, there's so many different stories and narratives that you can tell, much of which comes back to, like, this program was rolled out without any clarity as to what the actual rules were. It was like roll out that top level uh, announcement without having done any of the detailed rulings, rules, um, which just left everyone almost more confused than I said. Right. I, I agree with all of that. And, and I would add that, you know, this is yet another example of how um, the, the system is not designed to support the needs of borrowers. I mean, every decision is made um, in a restricting benefit. So, like, you know, I think that, um, that you know, Ryan's absolutely right. There are loads of people who are nowhere near qualifying for public service loan forgiveness at all and who have and, – and many of the people who applied, um, it was really just a sort of a Hail Mary. Um, but it's, it's also true that – the, the system does not give anyone a break on so much as the tiniest thing. I mean, they will, to, to, at the other extreme end of the spectrum, if someone makes a payment, you know, 20 days ahead of their due date, they, you know, won't get credit for, you know, that payment because it was made in the same month as their previous payment. And then they might not get credit for the next one either because their loan was put in a paid ahead status, you know. So borrowers are getting, you know, they're bleeding to death by a million tiny cuts, you know, and, and, and people are getting screwed out of one or two payments here and there. And because every time there's a question of how should we apply this rule, it's applied in the anti, you know, borrower way. And there is discretion within the system and even within loan servicing for them to approach these decisions in a completely different way. I mean, if the system didn't have this like punitive attitude toward debtors, they could they could interpret these rules much more flexibly so that more, the people who you know should be making progress from a policy standpoint really are, um, but that's not how it works. Well, I think what 
what I find very frustrating, I, I um, did a, a local TV interview actually just yesterday on this topic, and um, the anchor, like when I was talking about public service loan forgiveness, like you could tell she wanted to be like, but taxpayers are going to have to pay for this. And in my head, I'm like, well, one, like it's kind of illusory. Like people are having these huge numbers, quote, forgiven. That is just like negative amortization. Like it's all on paper. It's not actual debt that was taken out. Yeah, it's not real. Um, so that's one piece of it. But also, like, there, there's so much confusion around this. And then there is a little bit of a mindset from some, and it seems like some within the DOE, certainly, where, like, well, it's your debt, your problem. But the issue with that is, like, you know what? I, I think that's wrong on a bunch of different levels. But let's just go from the standpoint of, like, this program exists. Like, you know, we can argue that maybe it shouldn't exist. We can argue that it's too generous or that it's used by the wrong people. But the fact of the matter is it does exist. It's written into the promissory notes that the government gave to all these people when they signed. Therefore, someone should be doing something to make it actually function rather than actively trying to make it dysfunctional, um, which is sort of what it seems like uh, is happening in a lot of cases. And I do, I will say something I have shifted my thinking about is like I used to hold such contempt for uh, the customer service people that answer the phones at, you know, at FedLoan and uh, Navient and other servicers, because it just felt to me like they were so actively misleading people. And I have definitely come around to the place of like, that is a really hard job where every single person is upset with you. Every single person is confused and you are pushed to get off the phone as fast as possible. You are pushed to stick to a script. You are pushed to give, you know, kind of the minimal information and move on to the next call which creates conditions like who wants to work there? I imagine the turnover is extremely high. It's a high stress job for not that great a pay. Most of the people answering those phones have substantially less knowledge than most people who are calling, if I had to venture, I guess. I mean, that might be a little bit too hyperbolic of a statement, but like they, they turn over so quickly they can't actually help. So like here are these people who are promised a program. They're trying to navigate the program and the front lines of the people who are helping them navigate the program don't know the program themselves. Right. Yeah. And certainly I, I agree that the overwhelming majority of people who work in in you know all different sorts of settings within the student loan system, including loan servicing companies and the lenders and the government and the, you know, advisors and the borrowers and everybody else are, you know, good people who are with good intentions or doing the best they can. Um, within a really weird system with all kinds of bizarre incentives that are not aligned with, you know, one another or with the best interests of each other and um yeah i agree it's quite it's quite interesting i think to think about why and how it developed this way and i think it mainly the student loan system was you know i mean it, it's somewhat accidental i mean there were purposeful things that have been have been done but they've had unintended consequences like with any human endeavor right i i would say there's probably two big components to that one um you know these public service loan forgiveness income driven repayment plans the administration of these repayment options are vastly more complicated and time consuming to the servicers than a normal amortized loan repayment so as these programs have been introduced and become more popular the workload has increased for the servicers but they're not getting any additional revenue per dollar under under management and their book from from the government so they're having to do more on less and then the net takeaway of all of this is you see 99% of temporary public service loan forgiveness being denied, 99% of public service loan forgiveness being denied. And, and you do have individuals who have almost this disdain for borrowers that are adhering to the contract that they didn't write. 
to, to receive public service loan forgiveness. Um, and all of that together puts a number of borrowers in a position where they're thinking like, hey, public service loan forgiveness is a fraud. It doesn't, it doesn't exist. It doesn't work for me. Or temporary public service loan forgiveness isn't a real thing. Um, and, and they're making detrimental financial decisions uh, because of this disastrous system that's in place that's been administering. And, and the system has, Heather and I have talked, the system has improved over time. The system was very different 10 years ago for tracking and, 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 and working with the servicers than it is today. But those entering the system now are looking at this saying, well, I, I'm just going to pay my loans off or I'm going to do a private refinance. And that's that can be a costly financial decision because of their interpretation of what other people have experienced. Yeah. Can I can I share a, a, an example that fits right in with what you're saying there, James? Yeah, go for it. So I'm thinking of a couple that I worked with recently who, you know, pretty, pretty healthy income, young family. Um, and they, one of them had some graduate loans that had taken out and thought they were on track for PSLF like five years in, right? Like I work in a qualifying job and I'm making my payments on time every month and therefore I'm on track and I get the information and it's like, well, no, you're on the extended repayment plan. So you're not on a payment plan that would technically qualify. However, you are on one that would qualify for, for this temporary expanded public service loan forgiveness. So I look at it and I run some estimates. Um, and to your point, like the financially best option is for them to um, right now, you know, go back and try and get uh, employment certification from the past five years, even though technically, you know, the payments were on the wrong repayment plan, um, just to document it, to get then to, to switch to an income driven repayment plan going forward to get to the end apply for PSLF, get rejected, but then apply for the temporary expanded PSLF because that's basically exactly what it was for, right? Like someone who was making payments in the right type of employment, but on the wrong repayment plan. Um, and then at that point, if any of that money is left, then the loans get forgiven. So I just laid out like all these, you know, then they have to do this, but, 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 but all of these things. The alternative is they can do a private refinancing that's going to keep their payment pretty comparable to what it is now, but with the lowered interest rate, you know, they'll pay it off in 15 years instead of 21 years remaining. Um, but the difference between the PSLF option and the private loan is about $30,000. And so I came to them and I basically said, okay, the, the math answer here is you are a prime candidate to go for PSLF. There's going to be the, these hoops to jump through over the next five years. And that money may be gone if too many other people have gotten to it before you. Or you can privately refinance and it's going to cost you $30,000 more. And they chose the private refinance because they saw the headlines. And I tried to explain, you know, well, some of those people really weren't, shouldn't have applied. And some of those people will get it eventually. They just had a small administrative error. But they basically saw the 99% number and were like, yeah, I don't want to spend my time doing all that. Like the $30,000 difference in their mind is like the cost that they must pay to not have to go through the administrative hell that is everything I just laid out. And like, we shouldn't be forcing people to not choose the option that they are legally eligible for because we've made it so cumbersome to actually do it. Agreed. One, 100 per thousand percent. <laughs> so, Hey, Ryan, we, we got to wrap this up today, but um, thank you so much for joining us. Is there anything you want to uh, leave the listeners out there uh, with about uh, student loans or any advisors that may be considering uh, getting, improving their knowledge on this subject matter? 
Yeah. Um, you know, I would just say, like, I am dramatically more capable of advising on students' loans now that I have the CSLP than I was before. And I think if your firm works with young clients, right? Like, if you're, if you're a firm who does investment management for retirees, I think it's okay to just say, like, this isn't what I do. And if it comes through the door, I'm going to hire it out to somebody else. But if you're a firm that is regularly working with people under the age of 40, like you're going to see this. So somebody in your firm should become the expert on student loans and doing it piecemeal one at a time, looking it up every time you like you wouldn't treat other topics. You wouldn't treat estate planning like that. You wouldn't treat retirement planning like that. And student loan planning has significant consequences to people's you know financial goals. So so I would just say. Um, if you are an advisor or work in a firm, like somebody in your firm needs to be the expert on this, uh, because otherwise you're you're missing out on a lot of people that you could be helping, and you're also potentially, you know, leaving yourself exposed to liability if you are giving advice in an area that is is way too complicated to give advice if you don't actually have training. So I just think it's it's worth putting in the time and effort to get somebody up to speed and be an in-house expert uh, for your firm. Awesome. Thank you so much, uh, Ryan and, and Mother Hen. Uh, thank you for, for getting Ryan involved here to begin with. <laughs> cluck, cluck, cluck. <laughs> see you guys uh, at XYPN. Absolutely. Yeah. See you guys in a couple of days. Yeah.